I've never met Dr. Crystal Beal in person, but I'm hoping to have the opportunity. I always enjoy our conversations and learn so much. Dr. Crystal Beal, a board-certified family physician, started Queer Doc with the mission to raise the bar in gender-affirming care and improve LGBTQ lives through telemedicine-based direct clinical services, provider education, and LGBTQ DEI healthcare consulting. They leverage their lived experience and medical expertise to offer a level of unsurpassed nuance to their services. We talk about gender-affirming medical care and the evolving language surrounding it, and how to best recover after making a mistake regarding that language. Words matter. Dr. Beale attended Florida State University College of Medicine, where they helped found the LGBTQ Medical Student Group. They completed their training at Valley Family Medicine Residency Training Program. Dr. Beale sought extensive additional training in sexual health, queer health, and gender-affirming care, including self-study, continuing medical education trainings, and shadowing experts in the community. They have focused CME in the topics of cultural humility, trauma-informed care, sex-positive care, and kink-affirming care. They share their knowledge working with medical students and through their online program, QueerCME.com. Our audience, Physician's Guide to Doctoring, listeners can get 10% off with the code PGTD2022. They are a non-binary femme and are super queer themselves, enjoying queer burlesque, vintage fashion, and their queer kinky poly family. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Crystal Beal, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. You've always got such great ideas for episodes, and and I always learn so much from you and enjoy talking to you, so thanks so much. Yeah, I'm super excited to be back, Brad. I really appreciate your platform that you share um, for me to like get on my soapbox. I love it. Well, thank you so much. So we're gonna today we're gonna talk about um, the, the the main topic is the evolving language of gender affirming medical care. But I think the is more of an intro to that is just what is gender affirming medical. Actually, let's start with what isn't gender affirming medical care. Let's start with the, with the negative. Like, what are some things that people would think of as being? But you're like, no, actually, that's not quite it. Actually, I think that's a great way to frame the question. One, like, I'm gonna just give the context that like every person you ask will have a different answer to this question, which is also true when you ask someone, what is gender, um, right? And, and that's totally fine. We all get to have individual definitions. I'm just gonna give you my opinion, um, which, you know, similar to assholes, everyone has one. Some have more value than others. Um, but I do actually think it's easier to- I've never heard it said that way before, but love it, love it. Okay, sorry, go ahead. That's all right. I think it's just like, it is actually easier to think about what it isn't because I think really, I, I don't think any aspect of healthcare isn't gender affirming care. Really, I think gender affirming care is like similar to trauma informed care and like standard precautions and the fact that it like is, should be universally applied in healthcare. And so it can be as simple as like back to our first episode, like using someone's chosen name and chosen pronouns. And I think currently in this like super politicized environment, right? I think sometimes physicians and healthcare providers think that 
um, they have like the inherent right to decide whether or not they're going to honor someone's chosen name or pronouns based on like their personal values and their political beliefs. Um, and uh, that's actually inaccurate, right? Because we all know like we took an oath, I think like most of us took an oath, right? Um, about doing no harm. And really the data and research shows that um, consistent use of someone's names and pronouns is going to decrease their depressive episodes by like 71% and their um, suicidal um, attempts by 65%. And so by like actively ignoring someone's name and pronouns as a healthcare provider, you're increasing their risk of suicide, um, which is like an antithetical to the oath we all took. And so I think gender affirming care is, is every part of healthcare. Um, even if you're not the person prescribing the testosterone or you're not the person prescribing the estrogen or the puberty blockers, there are components of it that need to be included at every level, at every stage, with every specialty, with every provider, with every um, healthcare worker. Does that answer the question or just like make more I, questions? I, I, I think so. I think so. Although maybe, maybe it's, that would be like inclusive care. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm not using that word correctly. Maybe I'm, I don't know. Um, and, and whereas like gender affirming care, it, like you provide gender affirming care, right? Yeah. I think as an otolaryngologist, I might in, inclusive. And, and I think in, in some ways the term like holistic has been co-opted by all the, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow goop woo out there. Um, but I think as a, you can be a holistic provi provider that, you know, does things like that. Although I have to say that's like using someone's pronouns are, it's like the bare minimum, right? Like that's the least that you right. that you should be doing uh, right. when you're taking care of, of a patient, of any patient. Agreed. I agree. I think like the bar is actually really, really low. Um, and like we could debate terminology probably like until your baby wakes up at 5.30 in the morning, um, <laughs> right? Because it is like what is inclusive, what is affirming. And, you know, in my mind, gender affirming care is anything that's going to improve a health outcome. And so like, if we can measure like suicide attempts um, like, related to pronoun use and related to like inclusive paperwork at, at a healthcare system, you know, that does actually seem to be like affirming to me because it's changing a healthcare outcome. Um, but I think inclusive is a great word as well. Um, and it's like, as you said, is a bare minimum goal that we should all have in our practice um, and not just around gender, right? Around um, all of our, like differences as humans, so. Exactly, exactly. But so when I take out someone's tonsils, that is not gender affirming care, right? <laughs> um, that, that is, it's just, it's not. So, and you, but you do provide gender affirming care in your practice. And so what is, what is that? Yeah, and so if you wanna kind of divide it out like that, right? Like then you're medical really care, talking, yeah. Yeah, you're really talking about a medical intervention that affirms someone's gender as opposed yes. to like a clinical action that you're taking. And that is like a way a lot of people will define it out. And that's a great like definition to think about. Um, and so then you're talking about the actual prescriptive practices of a provider with things like testosterone or estrogen or anti-androgens or, you know, puberty blockers. Um, sometimes it's just contraception. Sometimes it's just stopping someone's like menstrual cycles. Um, you know, there are lots of kind of things that we do that sometimes maybe people don't realize are gender affirming care, but are. Okay. So, so, so far what you've mentioned is all hormone therapy related. Those are the examples that you've given. Is there anything involved in gender affirming care that is not like prescriptive or, 
that would involve I mean, something other than hormone? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you're getting, again, technically framing it in the context of medical interventions, there's lots of procedures. Um, you know, you can use Botox to affirm someone's gender. Like we use it to like decrease master muscle size to like change the shape of someone's jawline. Um, you know, you can use fillers to like create like a softer, rounder, fuller face. Um, um, and then, you know, there's obviously surgical interventions in the context of like gender affirming mastectomies for top surgery and there's bottom surgeries. There's also like a lot of other surgeries a lot of people haven't heard of in the context of like body contouring kind of hip to waist ratios is a way that our society codes gender like really quickly when we look at someone. And it's something that isn't typically affected a ton by hormonal prescribing if someone's already completed puberty. And so body contouring is a procedure that can affect that a little bit more. Um, so there's kind of those interventions. There's also going to be like mental health services and, and counseling support that's going to provide um, affirming um, interventions as well. Um, and then like maybe taking someone's tonsils out isn't affirming to you and it's going to be inclusive. And there are like lots of like kind of I think there might be voice-related surgery, right? Like right. There, uh, there are voice-related surgeries. Yeah. There's also a lot of like co-occurring like health conditions that we see like in higher rates among gender diverse people, like disordered eating and autism spectrum disorder. And so like having um, interventionalists in those areas that are also like well-versed in working with trans and gender diverse clients are actually really hard to find, um, um, particularly in the disordered eating community. Like I mean, have any kind of marginalization and it's hard to find care for someone in that community because it's for so long centered um, upper middle class, like thin, white, privileged, cis women. And so like, and we know that that's just a small part of disordered eating. Um, but unfortunately, that's where all of the like research and care has gone. So um, that's like a really complex issue that really lacks a lot of what we need for our gender diverse clients. Um, and so it is in many, many areas of care. So one of the things that you wanted to focus on, the main focus for today was uh, language, right? Yeah. Language in gender affirming medical care. So what's the what's the historical language been? Yeah, I sense? think, you know, and it's interesting because like we're medical providers, right? And I think prior to the advent of electronic medical records, our documentation was really to communicate um, with each other and with ourselves about what, like, what someone's health conditions and needs were, and like what 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 our thinking processes were, and what our interventions were, and and what we were hoping to get from those interventions, right, in our follow up plans. And if you look at like gender affirming care, it's like so enmeshed with this like societal construct of gender that like it's it hasn't been teased apart into like a truly like medical discipline in a way that like is well communicated across chart notes, right? And so like, I will get chart notes from people, um, you know, and they'll say like, um, you know, patient percent seeking feminizing hormone therapy, you know, goals for care, feminization, um, you know, estrogen and spironolactone started. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck that patient wanted out of their care, right? Because feminine, means something very different to me than it means to you, than it means to that patient, than it means to someone, you know, in Australia, than it means to someone in Greece, than it means to someone in Italy, than it means to someone in New Orleans. Like we all have like a societal and cultural construct around these concepts of masculine and feminine that 
like are going to be highly affected by like the culture we grew up in, the region we grew up in, and then our own individual like goals and values. Not to mention like the overarching like standards of beauty that exists within our culture. And so like, what the fuck does like goals of care feminization mean? Does it mean that that patient wanted like a curvier body, like more breast development? Does it mean that that patient wanted softer skin? Does it mean that that patient wanted different body odor? Does that mean that patient like, you know, wanted to stop erections or keep them? Like, like there's so many like specific goals for care that like aren't communicated by that statement in a way that as a like provider getting a transfer of care, I can actually like use, right? I think that's like the part that for me is so fascinating to think about like how, so typically like we would stray away from terminology that doesn't actually like concisely and clearly communicate what we need to know medically, but in the realm of gender care, we just rely on it like hand and foot and don't even think about it. Um, and so for me, when I'm writing, like when I'm thinking about my chart notes, I'm thinking, okay, if, if this patient transfers care, what does the other provider need to know? You know, they need to know that this patient, you know, came to me, they need to know like what organs they were born with and like what hormonal milieu they kind of had exposure to over what period of time. And then what organs they have now for preventative care and primary care, like screening purposes, right? Um, and then what hormonal milieu they're like being exposed to and for how long, and then like what their goals for care are. And so like, I'm always trying to think of like, how am I gonna communicate that in a concise fashion, but that still includes everything that's medically appropriate and really just pulls out this like social construct of gender because it's not actually relevant to the work I do as a, as a physician, um, right? It's super important to my patient and to our society and to all of us as like individuals, but like what I'm medically doing is I'm prescribing a hormone to change something in your physical or emotional experience. And I need to know what like things I'm actually targeting because it will change like how I prescribe. Um, and so that's like my big push in like this context, like for us to like really try to de-socialize our brains from that gender construct. Well, well, I think, I think this translates really into all medical care, the way that you're saying it, right? Because there is like, like cancer care, right? Like what is, what are the patient's goals of care? Like, I feel like the, the, it, it, you know, like palliative care, especially like where it can be so where where our values might not be the same as the patient's values. And actually, this is something that I sometimes say to my patients. They're like, what would you do if it was your kid? I'm like, I, I can't I can tell you what I would do if it were my kid, but it's not my kid. My values are not the same as your values. I can't make this decision for you. I can educate you as, as best I can about the scenario, but I can't force my value. I, I don't want to force my values on you because also if you had gone into the exam room with a different otolaryngologist, you might've gotten a different, a different recommendation. And so we have to recognize that and, you know, just help guide you as best we can without putting our values on you. Uh, right. It sounds, it sounds very similar. What yeah. like what you're doing in gender affirming care is what like the rest of us should be doing in all medical care. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And like patient centered, like value driven care, right, is a huge, a huge focus, um, I think, in 
the shift in medicine, right? Like away from kind of like historically we had a fairly like paternalistic approach, right? Um, and I think the the move has been away from that over the past um, several decades, which is um, to really center someone's values. And I think, again, like in gender affirming care historically, like really we have used the terminology of feminizing and masculinizing. And the other problem with that terminology, besides like not communicating what medical providers actually need to know is like, also it like falsely assumes a binary of gender and like excludes like a whole component of people who don't um, connect or, you know, identify with that terminology. And so like you run the risk of like really misgendering and causing significant trauma and harm to patients that aren't, aren't connected to that terminology by trying to shorthand your way into language that you think is understood. And so I think that's like kind of the other thing to think about, you know, um, when we're documenting and charting. So with regards to the, the language specifically, what you're saying is the, the broad terminology of masculinization or feminization is, is, is really not specific enough, not nearly specific enough for many reasons. Um, but is there any other language that has been used historically that has become passe? Yeah, lots. Like, um, right. I don't know if passe is yeah. aggressive enough to say. I mean, right, there was a history of gender identity disorder being diagnosed as a mental illness, just like that used to occur with homosexuality, right? And so like it's gone through like the terminology of like transvestism, transsexualism, like terms which can be very offensive to some people and other people claim as identities and are very proud and comfortable with, right? Um, um, but in general terminology, like we, we tend to recommend avoiding. I think also it's not uncommon historically to see transgender used as a noun. Um, that is not something we do in current terminology. Like we use it as an adjective. Um, I think another thing that I see frequently in, in like, gosh, we're gonna like talk about language for a very long time. Um, in language though is, an assumption of a cis normativity, right? Which, so basically what that means is like, right? People think that cisgendered is like the normalness of like life in the world and like transgenderness is like an abnormalness and ways that that is represented is like when someone says um, this patient is a woman and they don't put cis in front of that. It's like, they're making the assumption that if we're using woman, it's obviously a cis woman. And then they make the distinction that a trans woman is a trans woman. And that's like a, a completely inappropriate use of the terminology because it's like marginalizing and like othering transness in a way that's just not appropriate. Like if we look at across history and across cultures, like we see, you know, genders that are diverse and outside of a binary through like most cultures historically over many, many years. It was like really the advent of like colonialism that really kind of tamped down like the wide breadth and birth of gender that used to exist within most of our cultures. So yeah, it sounds like if you were to take a history or, or you know, tell your uh, attending history, this is, this is a uh, 27 year old uh, black female. Um, but then if, if it was a white patient, just say, well, this is a 27 year old female and just, well, yeah. well I didn't say they're you know, if they were white, because the assumption is that, right, because that is the currently the majority in this in this country. But it's what you're saying is it's just because it's the majority doesn't mean we should assume 
because then that yeah. makes it seem versus like normal versus abnormal. Right. Right. And so right. definitely like that comment, like, right. Um, you know, a lot of times, like I'll actually say, instead of saying like 27 year old, you know, black cis female, I'll say this is a 27 year old, you know, person, but I'll typically just say person instead of male or female. Cause like, again, gender doesn't necessarily need to be prioritized in like my concept of like medical care. And so I'm going to say like, it's a person. And then I'm going to say like, you know, presenting, um, seeking gender affirming bilateral mastectomy, um, you know, uh, currently on testosterone therapy, um, which was started five years ago, um, has not had any other gender affirming procedures or surgeries, like, um, organs for preventative care screening purposes include like a cervix, uterus and ovaries, um, and breast tissue, right. Or chest tissue. And so like, that's like how like my brain kind of organizes things and thinks about it more. What am I actually trying to communicate when I'm trying to communicate gender? And I'm trying to communicate like a potential like correlation or association with certain specific disease states, right? Like we see certain disease states more commonly um, with certain hormonal states, right? So like autoimmune conditions are more common in bodies with more estrogen frequently, right? Um, similar to like certain types of cancer, right? You're more likely to see, a, um, you know, estrogen fed cancers um, in bodies that have more estrogen exposure. That doesn't necessarily mean that's a body that was assigned female at birth, right? Or presumed female at birth, right? It just means it's a body that's had estrogen exposure for long enough that breast cancer started to become a concern. And so I'm always trying to pull it apart and think about like, what am I trying to communicate to other providers and what do I need to know to take care of this patient? Right. Then, that's the purpose of medical. Like that's the purpose of documentation. It's <laughs> communicating with yourself, communicating with another provider, uh, billing and, and, um, liability. Right. Those are the reasons. And the real, right. And the really great thing is like when you pull that terminology, like feminine and masculine out of it, you also pull like the chance of, again, misgendering someone who doesn't associate with those terms out of your documentation. And like, it's really, really common for patients to have access to their chart notes these days, you know, and so and like, get their lab results before you do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like, think about like how harmful that would be for a patient who like felt like they had a like therapeutic relationship with you and really felt seen and like understood by you. And, and then like, they're like in black and white is you, um, you know, inappropriately gendering them and, and causing them, you know, sing for some patients, it's going to be like, you know, they're going to move out past it and it's not going to be a big issue for them. But for other patients, like it might delay them seeking care. It might, you know, prevent them from getting like services that they need. And it can be like very traumatic. Oh yeah. It, it could like, right. I thought, I thought I had a relationship with this doctor. I thought I finally found a doctor that got me, but again, it's happened again. It's the entire medical establishment. And then they, you know, we, then we've, we've alienated them. We've lost them. Yeah. 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 So I think like, so, it's just like a nice, like you're communicating what you need to know. You're avoiding like the risk of like causing harm and trauma. And, and, um, I think, you know, typically in my notes and documentation as well, like in my assessment and plan for their gender care, I usually keep a section of like desired terminology from the, so, you know, typically we'll ask patients like, is this their terminology we want you to use? You want us to use specifically around um, your gender, your body or any of your body parts, right? And so we keep that list like just 
like it carries over and that if you have, you know, most people have Epic, it just carries over with the like, associated yeah, yeah. diagnosis. Yeah. And so it stays there and it helps keep like everyone on the team on track. And then it's something I can refer back to before I see the patient. So like I'm on the right page as well. So how do we recover from a mistake? Right. Like yeah. for an example, earlier when you said um, that it shouldn't be assumed that the the patient is cis. And then when I gave an example, I actually left out, I did not say trans or cis. I just, uh, uh, yeah. so, so I made, I made a mistake. I apologize. So how, but we're inter interacting with the patient. How do we recover? Yeah. I think a lot of advice and like organizations will say like, apologize and move on. Like don't belabor the point. Um, I think a lot of times in our society that when we apologize, it kind of puts the onerous and like burden onto the other person to like, say like, oh, no worries, or it's okay, or it's fine. Um, when a lot of times it might not be for them. So I think it's actually a better practice to just say like, um, you know, oh, I heard that you actually go by, um, you know, X, Y, or Z, or, oh, I just used the wrong pronouns for you. I'm going to work on that. Um, you know, how is your cough doing today? Like, it's like, just calling it out, acknowledging that it happened, like making a commitment to work on it, and then moving on. I think is really the best thing we can do as providers um, because it it doesn't ask our patients to like try to caretake us when we've made the mistake, right? Um, and it doesn't like make it about us by like belaboring the like, I'm so horrible and I fucked up and blah, 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 um, right? Um, and so it just like allows the attention to stay on the patient and their needs and our commitment to those needs. Love it. Any Anything else that you think that we didn't discuss today, either about gender-affirming language, gender-affirming medical care that uh, that we need to cover? Mm. <laughs> that I'm was sure a perfectly like so fine many... answer. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm sure there's so many things and it's the end of the day for both of us. So. <laughs> um, but I do, I'm happy to like, plug my education series if if that's an opportunity we can do yeah do it do it Sweet. do it let's hear it Sweet. <laughs> um so if anyone is more interested in learning about gender affirming medical care i have an online platform called queercme.com and there is actually a whole course that has 14 hours of cme ce certified webinars um, it has all of like my chart note templates for the care I provide. It has all the letter templates. If you're trying to refer someone for surgery or help them with legal transition, um, or write a letter of medical necessity. Um, and then we do quarterly ask the expert events that are live streamed. So you can talk to experts in the field about any questions you have. And then there's an active community as well, where you can post questions, thoughts, or ideas and have other people respond. Um, and so all of that online. Um, and I think kind of the difference between doing that through a conference like WPATH or, um, doing something like more traditionally done is like, it's online, it's at your own pace in your own home. Um, and, uh, I have lived experience as a gender diverse person. Like I identify as, um, femme, but in like a non-binary fashion. So it's not part of like the traditional female or womanhood in any way. And, um, I have multiple partners in my life and family members who have gone through medical transition as well. And layered with like a high volume practice in gender affirming care, I think it just brings kind of a level of nuance to what I share in the platform that's a little different than you get at a conference. In addition to the fact that 
um, I think a lot of conferences really focus on the guidelines like WPATH and UCSF and Endocrine Society. And they're all a little bit outdated at this point. Like the standard that those of us who do this work a lot practice at is um, a fair bit different than what is readable in the current guidelines. WPATH is coming out with their SCO8 this year. So there is gonna be a big update to the guidelines, which is exciting to see. And then your website. Yes. Careerdoc.com. Yeah. Which I love. I love that website. Thank you. Lots of educational information for patients there. Um, lots of resources if you have any gender diverse patients that need um, support groups or, you know, education on hormones um, or how to do their own injections or anything like that. Um, lots of information there. And we also have our provider education link through there as well as our corporate consulting. So if your organization is like sucking it up with the names and pronouns, um, we can definitely help <laughs> you out there. <laughs> Wow, you are all over the place. You've got, you've got, you're, you're, you're wearing a lot of hats now. You're really growing the business. I love it. Yes. Um, you know, I think with the changes in like regulation for prescribing around COVID, we saw so many clinics come into the telehealth space. Um, and, and that's amazing. I love that trans and gender diverse patients have more options. Um, but we definitely have other clinics in this space that really have like a telehealth startup mentality and, and kind of did some venture capitalism funding, capitalism, venture capital funding. Um, and so they really have a goal, I think, of opening in all 50 states. And that was just never something that was really super appealing to me as like a small practice owner. Yeah, getting, so, getting licensing in each individual, it just sounds, you'd be spending your entire life filling out paperwork. Yeah, no, no, thank you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, um, I think I was really just like at a point where I was thinking like, well, that's not the way I want to grow. How do I want to grow? And I think there's just so much more ability to improve the lives of my community if I train like providers and healthcare organizations, right? Because as an individual provider, I can see a few hundred patients and change their lives. And that's an amazing experience. And I love it. And I will always continue to do that. But it's just a few hundred lives, you know, and there are thousands and thousands and, you know, millions of gender diverse people in the world. And I would like to have a bigger impact than that. So that's the goal. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. And I can't wait to have you back on the show another time. As soon as you think of another topic that you want to discuss, let me know. <laughs> Sounds good. Dr. Thank Crystal you. Beal, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Bradley. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.